Well, I'd invite you to take your Bibles and open them to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. This morning we are continuing in what we began last week as we've been talking about our magnificent salvation. The salvation that God has granted to us. The salvation that none of us deserve, but a glorious and grand salvation that He has given us. And I'll begin this morning by reading our text for us. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 10. Follow along as I read our passage for us. 1 Peter 1, beginning in verse 10. Peter says this, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. And these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. Last week we began talking about the magnificence of our salvation. And we know how magnificent it is in light of knowing who we really are. When we realize that we who are wretched and depraved sinners have been saved by a perfect and holy and righteous God, that should cause us to stop, to be amazed and to rejoice in our God who has saved us. And to thank Him for the salvation that we have been given, the salvation that we have been granted by God that none of us deserve. In fact, let me ask you, when was the last time that you just stopped and pondered your salvation? The greatness and the grandness of your salvation. Thinking about all of the sin that you've committed against God, and yet you are saved by His amazing grace. Well, Peter wants his readers here to remember that. He wants them to always remember that, especially in light of the circumstances that they are in. Remember, they are going through persecution because of their salvation. Because of the faith that they have in Christ, they are being persecuted. And Peter's writing to them so that they will not forget the great salvation that they have been given, especially in light of the persecution that they are presently enduring. And in verses 10-12, through 12, we see four different perspectives from Peter as he writes about the magnificence of our salvation. And again, he doesn't come at it from a perspective that you and I would normally come at it from. But he approaches the magnificence of our salvation from the perspective of the prophets, the Holy Spirit, the apostles, and even the angels. We saw last week what we called first the prophet's investigation. The prophet's investigation. And we saw how Peter approached it from the perspective of the prophets who investigated this great salvation. He tells us at the end of verse 11 that the prophets made careful searches and inquiries as they studied other prophets' writings and even their own writings in order to find out both the person and the time of the fulfillment of this great salvation. The prophets themselves studied the writings of other prophets and they even studied their own writings as God revealed it through them as they wrote down what God wanted them to write down. They studied those writings because they wanted to know who this Messiah was. Who was this person? Who is He? And and when is He going to come? And so they investigated this. They wanted to know who the Messiah was. 
And they wanted to know what the timing of his coming was. And so we saw the prophet's investigation. And then we saw, second, the Spirit's inspiration. The Spirit's inspiration. We saw how the Holy Spirit inspired the writings of the prophets as they wrote about this great salvation. It was the Holy Spirit who was inspiring everything that they were writing down. And again, as we understand the inspiration, the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture, that, it, that it's not the prophets themselves who were inspired, but it's what they wrote down that was inspired. They wrote down God-breathed words. It was breathed out by God. This is not something that they thought up themselves, but it was something that was revealed to them by the Spirit of Christ, who, as we saw last week, is the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Christ is the Holy Spirit, who was within them, working in them. And the Holy Spirit was revealing to them things that were to come in the future. They were prophets, and they wrote down predictions. And what was being predicted? Notice the end of verse 11 there. The sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Now, let me just pause right here because I didn't really expand on this last week, but I want to just draw this out for you here. I think this is very helpful for us, as it would have been helpful for Peter's readers in times of suffering. And this is very helpful for us to understand what Peter is talking about here. Notice the two things that Peter says that the Spirit predicted. The sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. That is, Jesus would suffer for a while, but glory was to follow that suffering. Now think about this. Isn't this our life on earth? Isn't this our life? We suffer here on earth, but what is to follow? Glory. Glory is to come. You see, many people today are told a gospel that says that if you become a Christian, all of your troubles will go away. No more pain, no more sorrows, no more suffering. But that's not true. That isn't true. Did Christ suffer? He did. We just read about it, right? In John chapter 19, the sufferings of Christ. So why would we think that we would live a trial-free life, a suffering-free life? Our Savior suffered. You see, the pattern of Christ, suffering and glory, is the same pattern of the believer's life right? It's the exact same pattern. That's our pattern. We will suffer here in this lifetime, but there is something that is much greater to follow. As a believer, persecution will come our way in this lifetime. It will. In fact, Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Do you desire to live godly? I hope you do. I hope you would answer yes to that. Then listen, church. Get ready. You're ready for persecution. If you desire to live a godly life, God promises that suffering will come. Persecution will come. And this suffering that we go through in this life is not a sign that Christ has betrayed us or abandoned us or that he doesn't care about us. In fact, our suffering in this life is a sign, listen to this, it is a sign of our fellowship with Christ. Who suffered for us. It's a sign that we belong to Him. When you suffer for Christ, that is a sign that you belong to Him. You are one of His. 
When we suffer for our faith, it's proof that we belong to him. And in that, what should we do? Rejoice. Thank you, Lord, for the suffering. Thank you, Lord, for the persecution. Because this confirms to me that I belong to you. That's what Peter wants to encourage his readers here with, who are enduring persecution. He wants them to know that the pattern of their current life, which is suffering, is the same pattern of Christ's life. He suffered too. But what was the outcome of Christ's suffering? Glory. Glory is the outcome. And what will be the outcome of our suffering for Christ? The same glory. That's what we have to look forward to. To glory. Remember, Peter told us about this glory back in verse 7, where he says, So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is, God is going to praise us and give us glory and honor when Christ returns. And that suffering of Christ and the glories to follow were revealed to the prophets through the Holy Spirit. It was told them, this is the pattern. This is what would happen. And we get to participate in that suffering and that glory. Why? Because of the magnificent salvation that we have been given. What a magnificent salvation it is. And so now we come to point number three. Our third point in what we will call the Apostles' Instruction. The Apostles' Instruction. Look at verse 12 again with me and notice what it says there. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, that is, the prophets, but you. In these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Now, notice there's a shift here from the prophets to the current readers of Peter's letter. In verse 12, there's this shift that takes place. He's just talking about the times of the prophets when they had it revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. That's the prophets. Beginning there in verse 12, he's talking about the prophets. The prophets had divine revelation revealed to them, and they then wrote it down. But there were things that they wrote down that they did not understand, like the timing or the dates of the incarnation of Christ. They didn't know when the Messiah would come. They didn't know who the person was. They didn't know the the timing of Christ's arrival. But what they did know is that their words would have a dramatic impact on the future generation. They were writing these things down for a future generation. A future people who would see the Messiah come. Who would be there during the time of the Messiah's arrival. They understood that what they wrote down was not for themselves, but was for a later generation who would hear the gospel and follow after the Messiah in whom they wrote about. And who is that later generation then? It's Peter's readers. It's these people. Those that are suffering in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia who are chosen of God. The readers of Peter's letter. They are that future generation. And it's also us, right? It's us who are reading this letter today. Notice what Peter says there in the middle of verse 12. He says, in these things which now have been announced to you. The prophets were looking forward to a time in history when the Messiah would be revealed. But in the time that Peter's readers were living, in the time that you and I are living, we know who the Messiah is, right? He has been revealed. 
That's why the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 1.1, he says this, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in whom? His Son. He's spoken to us in His Son. God spoke long ago through the prophets, but now in these last days, in the days that you and I are living in, in the days that even Peter's readers are living in, in these last days, He has spoken to us in His Son. How? Because His Son was revealed to us. He was revealed. He came to earth and He preached what the Father wanted Him to preach. He spoke everything that the Father wanted Him to speak. It was revealed to us. And now we read of the historical events that took place 2,000 years ago when Christ the Messiah was revealed. And Peter's readers, along with us, are the personal recipients of the prophetic fulfillment. The fulfillment that these prophets wrote about thousands of years ago. Now, notice there in verse 12 that Peter says these things, right in the middle of verse 12. They were not serving themselves, but you. In these things. What are the these things that Peter is talking about there in the middle of verse 12? Well, these things here, this is the who and the when that Peter had just announced back in verse 11, where he says, seeking to know what person or time. That these things is, is the person and the timing of the arrival of the Messiah. Now, we know the person and we know the time, right? We know it today. We have it revealed to us. The person is Jesus and the timing was 2,000 years ago when Jesus brought us salvation. He came as the Lamb of God who would be slain for us. He came to make the payment for our sin, a payment that none of us could make. He did it. Jesus did it. And that great message of salvation has now been announced. It's been announced. And Peter says it's been announced to you. The fulfillment of all that has been announced to you. It was announced to Peter's readers and it's been announced to us. We understand the gospel. We understand who the Messiah is. We understand when he came. We understand the fulfillment now of all the things that the prophets wrote about in the Old Testament. We get it all. But who were the first ones to announce this message? The, the apostles. The apostles were the first ones to announce this message. The New Testament preachers, the ones that Christ commissioned to go and preach the gospel to all the sinners and to all the nations. In fact, take your Bible and turn over to Acts chapter 1. This is helpful for us to see this. In Acts chapter 1, after Jesus had gathered the apostles to himself, he told them to wait in Jerusalem for the promised Holy Spirit. They were to wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit had come upon them. And they, at this time, had the information. The apostles now have the information. They know who the Messiah is. They know the timing of his arrival, that he has come, that he went to a cross to make the payment for our sins, that he was buried, and then he rose again on the third day. They understand now, there's the fulfillment of all the Old Testament. They have the information. But what did they need? They needed supernatural power. In fact, look at what Jesus then tells them in Acts 1.8. But you, you apostles, will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. 
the apostles would receive the Holy Spirit, and then they would go forth in the power of the Holy Spirit to go and preach the gospel to all the nations. And what did they announce to the world? They announced that Jesus is the Messiah. And that the time is now for salvation. That all the things that the prophets wrote about, it has been fulfilled. So repent and trust in Christ and the Messiah who has come. In fact, turn over to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3, this is Peter's second sermon that he preached after Pentecost, after receiving the Holy Spirit. And notice what Peter announced in his sermon in Acts 3.18. Notice what he says there. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the who? The prophets. That his Christ would what? Suffer. He has thus fulfilled. It's been fulfilled. What was the apostle Peter saying? He was telling these people that God announced the sufferings of Christ way before the cross. Back in the Old Testament through the prophets. He announced it all the way back in the Old Testament through the prophets. And now Peter the apostle stands up and begins to preach the gospel and tell the people what the prophets wrote about has now been fulfilled. He is announcing it. To them. He's telling them that it has been fulfilled. Everything in the Old Testament has been fulfilled. You see, that's why we don't unhitch the Old Testament from the New. False teacher and heretic Andy Stanley said in a message in April of 2018. Peter, James, and Paul elected to unhitch the Christian faith from the Jewish scriptures, and my friends, we must as well. No, Andy, they didn't. No, they didn't. They didn't unhitch it. And we shouldn't either. Peter's first and second sermon were all rooted in the Old Testament scriptures. It was the foundation for their preaching. It was the prophets. In fact, in his first sermon in Acts chapter 2, Peter quotes the prophet Joel. And then he quotes David in the Psalms. Those, by the way, are both in the Old Testament. Then in his second sermon here in Acts chapter 3, he tells them that God has fulfilled what the prophets announced. And then he even quotes Moses down in verse 22. The apostles preached the fulfillment of what the prophets spoke about. They told the people the gospel. They announced the good news of the person of Christ and what he did to redeem sinners. Then notice what Peter instructs them to do in Acts chapter 3 and verse 19. Notice what it says there. What does Peter say? Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away. It was the apostles who went forth and announced the gospel. The apostle Paul even said in 2 Corinthians 6, 2, Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. It's now. The prophets were looking forward to it. The apostles now announce, today is the day of salvation. And the apostles went all over to preach the good news of the gospel and to instruct people to repent and trust in Christ so that they could be saved. And then, all of those who received the message from the apostles continued to preach it and announce it to others. The gospel then spread. And it continued to spread. And that's what it's doing today, right? That's what we have been commissioned to do. To go and preach the gospel to the nations. To the lost. 
When did it start? All the way back with the apostles. And now 2,000 years later, we are continually preaching the same message that they preached to the lost. Now, turn back to 1 Peter chapter 1. And look again at verse 12. Peter says, they preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. The apostles were filled with the Spirit. As we just saw in Acts chapter 1, the fulfillment of it was in Acts chapter 2, but the apostles were filled with the Spirit who was sent from heaven on the day of Pentecost, and then they went forth and preached the gospel. Then all those who heard the message of salvation and were saved were then filled with the Holy Spirit and they went forth and preached the same message. And on and on it went. But it started with the apostles. They knew the magnificence of the message of salvation. And this message was precious to them. In fact, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2.2, 2, he says, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him what? Crucified. He preached the message of the cross because it is in that message that we are told of the magnificence of salvation. If you want to be saved, repent of your sin and trust in Christ alone. For salvation. Trust in Christ who died on a cross for sinners and rose again on the third day. Trust in Him and you will receive eternal life. What a magnificent message it is. And it was precious to these apostles. How precious was it to them? They were willing to die for it. In fact, they did die for it. They died for the gospel. In AD 160, Polycarp, who was a disciple of the Apostle John, at the age of 86, was told to recant his faith in Christ. They threatened to throw him to the wild animals if he would not recant. And when he wouldn't recant his faith in Christ, they threatened to burn him at the stake. But still, he would not recant. And eventually, they did. They burned him at the stake. For his faith in Christ. Because he was a man who preached the gospel. This magnificent salvation. And he unashamedly proclaimed this precious gospel. So that lost sinners could be saved. Why would Polycarp do something like that? Why would the apostles die for their faith? Because they knew how great their salvation was. They knew the magnificence of salvation. And Peter wants these suffering believers to remember this as well. To remember how great your salvation is. That no matter what type of suffering you are going through, Remember that you have been redeemed, that you have been saved by a good and gracious God. And that what is to come is glorious. Better than anything we could experience here on this earth. And so that's the apostles' instruction. And so we've seen so far the prophet's investigation, the spirit's inspiration, the apostle's instruction. Let's look finally at the angel's inquiry. The angel's inquiry. Look at the end of verse 12. 
Peter says there, things into which angels long to look. Now, I know this is what all of you have been waiting for. (laughs) To get to this portion, to understand what is this talking about. Well, before we unpack this little sentence here at the end of verse 12, let me just quickly give you a, a quick study of angels. This is what we call in theology, angelology. Angelology. The word angel can be translated as messenger, envoy, or ambassador. Hebrews 1.14 tells us that angels are ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. They are ministering spirits. And as ministering spirits, they are created beings. Angels are created. We don't know when they were created, but it must have been right at the outset of creation because it says in Job 38.7 that the angels sang during creation. So it must have been right at the outset of, of creation that God created the angels. This also means that angels are not eternal. Angels are not eternal. Only God is eternal. They are created beings just like you and I are created. Angels also, as spirit beings, don't have a physical body. They don't have a physical body, but they can appear in a, vis- uh, in a visible state, like they did at the tomb of Jesus. They appeared there in a vis- visible state, but they are spirit beings that don't have a physical body. The angels are also elect. We talk about the doctrine of election. The angels are elect, chosen by God. 1 Timothy 5.21 says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of His chosen angels. Angels are chosen or elect of God. Angels are also created morally pure. They're created morally pure, which is why in Luke 9.26, Jesus calls them holy angels. They are holy. They are set apart. They are morally pure without sin. That's an angel. So that's a little bit about angels. But what is Peter talking about when he talks about angels longing to look into this salvation? Well, let's think about the angels' involvement in salvation. And think about the announcement of salvation for a moment. Were angels involved in that? Were angels involved in the announcement of salvation? Yes, they were. In Luke chapter 1, the angel Gabriel announced to Zacharias that he and his wife Elizabeth would have a son in their old age. And their son, that is John the Baptist, was to prepare the way for the arrival of the Messiah. He was the one that the prophets wrote about. The forerunner who would come before the Messiah and prepare the way and call the people to repentance. The angel Gabriel then appears to Mary in Nazareth and tells her that she would bear the Messiah. And an angel appeared to Joseph in a dream to tell him that the woman he was betrothed to, although she was a virgin, was going to have a son and they were to name him Jesus. It was the angel that announced that to them. Then angels appeared to the shepherds who were in the field nearby after Jesus' birth. These angels told the shepherds that a Savior had been born who is Christ or Messiah. That's what Christ means. He is Messiah, the Lord. 
Then an angel appeared to Joseph and told him to take Mary and Jesus and to flee to Egypt because Herod was killing all of the baby boys in the region of Bethlehem because he had heard that a king had been born. So he wanted to take out all the baby boys, all those who were two years and under, wipe them all out, make sure that there was no king who was going to try and take his place. So Joseph and Mary had to flee with Jesus to Egypt. And it was an angel that told them to do this. Then they were there in Egypt, and an angel then told Joseph to go back to Israel. In which they went back to Israel and they lived in Nazareth. Then in Matthew chapter 4, after the temptation of Jesus, Jesus is now an adult, he's grown. And in Matthew 4, after the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, angels came and ministered to him. Then we see three years later, after the death and burial of Christ, Matthew tells us in Matthew 28 too, that a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. An angel even announced to the women at the tomb that Jesus wasn't there. Then, we see that even at the ascension of Jesus in Acts 1.10, when Jesus ascended to heaven, that angels come and they announce to the apostles that Jesus has ascended and will come back the same way that they've seen him go. It was angels who announced that. And told them. Angels were involved in the announcement of the Messiah. In the protection of the Messiah. In the life of the Messiah. In the resurrection of the Messiah. And in the ascension of the Messiah. Angels were all involved in that. A lot of angel involvement. In the announcement and accomplishment of salvation. Right? Now, think about what is involved in salvation for us. Think about what is involved in salvation for us. We receive grace from God in our regeneration. And our spiritually dead hearts are made alive, Ephesians 2 tells us. We receive the gift of repentance and faith in conversion. We have the righteousness of Christ imputed to our account through justification. And our sins are forgiven. We are also adopted and become children of God in our salvation. We then have the Holy Spirit residing within us as God continues to sanctify us. All of that takes place in our salvation. And yet, angels don't experience any of this. Why? Because they've never sinned against God. They've never sinned like you and I. They don't experience God's grace in regeneration. They don't experience conversion or justification or adoption or sanctification. They don't experience any of that because they never sinned against God like we have. They were involved in the announcement of salvation, but they have never experienced salvation themselves because they're perfect. They've never sinned against God. They've never experienced salvation because there was nothing to save them from. They don't have sin. The fallen angels or the demons do, but they aren't redeemable. The demons are unredeemable. There's no salvation that is offered to them. But the elect angels never experience salvation. 
And so for them, they are wondering what this is like. What is it like to be saved by God? They know Him. They've obeyed Him always. They're messengers for Him. They were used in the announcement of the Messiah. They were there at His resurrection. They were there at His ascension. They've seen all of this take place. And yet they've never experienced salvation themselves. They wonder what it's like to be saved by God. They don't know. They've never experienced it. Even though they were involved in many ways in the announcement of salvation. They didn't get to experience any of it. Because they've never needed salvation. Notice Peter says there in verse 12, things, things into which angels long to look. Notice that word things. What are those things? He's talking about the things of salvation. It's the things of salvation. And what do they do about the things of salvation? Peter says they long to look. This phrase here is fascinating. It's fascinating. In the Greek, notice that word long. That word in the Greek there means to have a strong desire to do or secure something. A strong desire for, a longing for something. It can mean in the negative sense to lust after. But here in the positive sense, it's a strong desire for something. To crave after something. And notice, these angels don't just ponder salvation or have some kind of curiosity about salvation. But Peter tells us they long to look. They have a strong desire to comprehend this salvation that we, as humans, have been granted. That word to look means to, to bend over, to stoop down, or to stoop forward, or to examine more closely. It's as if they're bending down to examine it more closely. They're looking at this. These words here show the intense interest that these angels have about salvation. They are intensely interested in the salvation that you and I have been granted. They long to look into it. And why is there so much inquiry and interest about this salvation? Because they never get to experience it. They don't have sin. They're holy beings. But they long to look more deeply into salvation because of how magnificent it is. Wow. Look at what God is doing. They would look at my life and go, wow. God saved that sinner? Wow. Your grace is amazing, God. And they do it with every person who is saved. They long to look. And even though they will never experience this great salvation, they know how magnificent it is. How do we know? Luke tells us in Luke 15.10 that when one sinner repents, what do the angels do? They rejoice. They rejoice over one sinner who repents. In Revelation 5, 
speaks of the angels worshiping Christ for His accomplishment of salvation for us. And in verse 8 it says, When He had taken the book, the four living creatures, those are angels, and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. That's Christ. Each one holding a harp, golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song. And listen to what they said. They said this, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Wow. That's their worship of Christ. Why would they worship Christ who was purchased for God with His blood? Men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation? Why would they worship Him? Because they understand how magnificent salvation is. Because Christ, the Lamb, was slain And he purchased for God with his own blood salvation for us. For us, church. He did that for us. And we sing every Sunday about this, right? Every Sunday when we gather together, we sing about this. (laughs) Just like the angels sing. Why do we sing about this? Because we've experienced this great salvation. We've experienced it. But the angels never get to experience it. They never have experienced it and they never will experience it personally. So what do they do? They long to look into this salvation. They're fascinated with salvation because of how magnificent it is. And that's what Peter wants to remind these persecuted believers of. That no matter what you're going through, no matter how bad your suffering gets, remember how magnificent your salvation is. You may be suffering now, but what is to come, church? Glory! Glory is to come. And why is glory to come for us? Because of the magnificent salvation that you and I have been granted. In closing, I want you to notice what Peter is after here. He's just told us about the prophet's And the Holy Spirit and the apostles and the angels in order to put on display the greatness of salvation. But Peter is not saying here that we have to wait until heaven to experience the glory and the joy and the greatness of our salvation. Remember, he's writing to suffering Christians to remind them of their great salvation so that they would not lose heart in the midst of their trials and their tribulation. You see, there is suffering that we will go through here on this earth. Just get ready, church. As long as we're here, there's more suffering to come. Many of us have already suffered. There's more to come. But listen, that doesn't mean that we can't experience the joy that we receive from salvation in the here and now. In fact, we can. That's why Peter said back in verse 8, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. You persecuted believers, (laughs) you greatly rejoice. You see, we don't have to wait to live joy-filled lives until we reach heaven. But we can experience it now. Here and now. Even in the midst of suffering, 
we can experience great joy. Don't let persecution and suffering steal your joy. Don't let it. Remember that you have been given a magnificent salvation by a gracious and merciful God. And you, when you remember that, in the midst of your trials, that should cause your heart to be filled with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Well, next time we're going to see how we are to live our lives in the midst of of suffering as those who have received this magnificent salvation. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the greatness, the grandness, the magnificence of salvation. Salvation that we have been granted not because of anything that we have done. For we know what your word tells us that no one is good, no, not one that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But we thank You for granting us grace, mercy, for granting us repentance and faith in conversion so that we could be justified by You, so that we could have the righteousness of Christ imputed to our account and be forgiven of our sin. So that we could be adopted into your family as your children. Lord, I pray for anyone who is here this morning who has not received this free gift, who has not embraced Christ as Lord and Savior, Lord, I pray that you would draw them to yourself. I pray that you would awaken their dead heart. That you would grant them repentance from sin and faith in Christ and that they would trust in Christ who went to a cross to make the payment for their sin and who was buried and rose again on the third day and sits at your right hand and who offers eternal life to all who come to him. Lord, may you do your work in their hearts and may today be the day of salvation for them. And may it be all for your glory. We pray that as we leave from here this morning, Lord, that we would remember how magnificent salvation is and that we would live joy-filled lives remembering what you have done to redeem us, your children. We love you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.